Welcome to the History Slam podcast from ActiveHistory.ca. Here's your host, Sean Graham. Thank you, Adam. Welcome to the History Slam, everybody. I am Sean Graham coming at you today nearly live from Ottawa, Ontario. And we have, I think this is our second transatlantic episode that we're doing, which is always fun to, to get people from far-off places. And today we have Jeremy Schmidt from Durham University, who has written a new book just out, hot off the presses, entitled Water, Abundance, Scarcity, and Security in the Age of Humanity. And he is joining us all the way from across the ocean. Jeremy, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. So I have to say, I told you this before we just before we recorded, I watched a documentary about water and water wars about three years ago, and I was terrified when I watched this show about the way in which water has been commodified and is used and is, and people are dying around the world, not just because they don't have access to water, but in wars and actual physical fights about water. And so the idea of it is really scary Give to me, given how important water is to just life, right? We can't have life without it. So I'm just curious for you in, in, approaching a topic like this where did the interest come from where was the motivation to look into this this book oh that's a great question i mean for me the motivation around water has always um, been based in a trip that i took to uh, india in 2005 with uh, some friends of mine and as part of our research we decided we would purify our own water so that we wouldn't be contributing to the bottled water problem there and ever since then, it's really stuck with me that water is, something, is the sort of thing that people care for deeply, universally, but that we often just don't know where our ideas about water came from. Mm-hmm. And so that was sort of the impetus for the book, is to try to unpack how we came up with the particular ideas that we use now to manage water, many of which are contributing to the sorts of conflicts that you're, you're identifying. So that's interesting. In, in trying to come up with how to do that, to, to purify your own water, and to come up with a book idea, but just the practical side of it, how do you actually do that? Uh, and, and I say this legitimately not knowing, and, and I spent last summer in China where I was told, don't drink the tap water, just drink bottled water, and it never occurred to me to do anything else. Uh, just Maybe I'm just not smart enough or, or, or thought about it. So, so that's that's interesting to me. It, it's just not something that would strike me to do that yourself. So did you have the knowledge to do that before you went? I did, actually. Yeah. I spent many years as a, a whitewater kayak and outdoor guide in western Montana. So I'd, I had a water filtration system and took iodine pills for the parts and bacteria I couldn't get out with my little pump from that I think I bought from Mountain Equipment Co-op way back mm-hmm. when. And so, yeah, we used used that and it worked fairly well. Okay, so that's interesting that you, you knew how to do that. And is this the sort of thing that, from a Western perspective, that we just take it for granted? And in, in looking at water policy, is that part of the problem that you know people like me just take for granted that I can turn on my tap and water's there, or if I go to another country where they they tell me not to, it's in water, or excuse me, it's in bottles. Is that part of why this is such a big issue, a, a big problem? I think, I mean, that there is certainly the notion that, uh, you know, as Jamie Benedictson, the historian at University of Ottawa once wrote, that we have, we live in this kind of culture of flushing, 
where we're accustomed to large amounts of water and using it in fairly profligate ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, but of course, that's not a universally Western thing. Right? We have one of the things I was interested in in this book was how could we have such drastic inequalities, say, between Canadians uh, who are not on reserve and First Nations who are. And what I was interested in is where did these sort of cultural ideas about how to manage water come from and who do they exclude? And that's sort of also a driving part of the of the book. So it's it's really about then not only the economics, but the culture and the, the socialization that goes along with water and access to water? Absolutely, yeah. That was that's a really big part of it for me. And one of the one of the first things that I tipped me off to this was that when I was starting to do the research, it turned out that it was a number of uh, what you might call failed anthropologists who were really formative in developing the ideas that are now prevalent and widespread in water management. And it was their approach to culture that failed academically but was quite successful politically that we now sort of live with the consequences of. So that way that we think about water then is is a carryover from previous societies, previous cultures, and, and we haven't then adapted to, you know, 21st century ideas of water, or even 20th century ideas of water. And these ideas that were originally brought forward, that's what guides our understanding of it? Yeah, somewhat remarkably. I mean, yeah. uh, I was quite surprised to learn, you know, I've studied water management for a long time, all of my Um, you know, the last decade or so. And one of the most sort of common starting points for water management is that, you know, there is no overarching philosophy or view of water management because it's so complex, you know, because it ranges from environmental concerns to economic to social to cities to farms and so on. There's no overarching set of ideas that binds all of this together. And that's sort of the common wisdom of water management. But what I found and what I argue in the book is that, in fact, there is a common way of thinking about water that has deep philosophical and social roots, but we just don't recognize it as such. We don't recognize it as the sort of philosophy of water management. Uh, and because of that, we sort of don't break out of this, what I think is a fairly constrained way of thinking. Well, so that's really interesting because, you know, you go to the any science museum anywhere in the world, and they have the water part of it, and they present it generally as water is the this universal source of life. We can't live without it. And it's just, I don't know if that's a philosophical presentation of what water is, but it's this very altruistic, you know, water is everywhere, and it can be found everywhere, and that's why life can be sustained on the planet. And yet, that does seem like a very rose-colored view of water, and it doesn't take into account the actual human usage, uses of it and the way in which people have tried to manage it. Yeah, I think, I think you're right to point out this sort of very naturalized view around the connection between water and life, which is certainly empirically true. I mean, it's absolutely correct. At the same time, water is managed for certain kinds of social life. Mm. And in my book, what I do is I start out by showing or tracing the steps that a group of American geologists took in the late 19th century to 
show how water was connected uniquely to American forms of life. And as these geologists sort of moved along in their ideas, they converted essentially to uh, anthropology. In fact, uh, one of the key players in the book is uh, a famous American explorer and advisor to Congress named uh, Major John Wesley Powell. And he was the second director of the U.S. Geological Survey who became convinced that anthropology was sort of the key to Western settlement in the U.S. and went on to found the Bureau, American Bureau of Ethnology. And what he did was he took these this idea that water was the linking bridge between geology and all life. And he argued that the culture that figured out this link between geology and social life was superior or had progressed further than others. And so it just happened to be the case that American institutions and forms of life were what water should be used to support because it was the most advanced for having figured this out. So it was all quite convenient, but enrobed in very, what would have been you know, the most advanced geology of the time. That sounds like a bunch of academic nonsense, that type of an argument, right? Like, does nobody, like, if this guy, if Powell isn't working for Congress, does he not, does someone not look at him and say, that's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard? Like, well, that, that, it, that, that just sounds so outlandish. I mean, it does sound quite outlandish to academics and in fact, Powell's main protege, the person who really took these ideas forward academically, was uh, William John McGee, who co-founded the American Association of Anthropology with Franz Boas in 1902. In fact, McGee was the first president of the uh, American Anthropology Association, uh, and, and they all had a huge role with academics at the time. And they lost on every count academically with these ideas, uh, but the end result of that academic loss was that they simply turned and used their contacts in Washington to develop what we now know as natural resource conservation uh, in North America. And people like W.J. McGee ended up training uh, key people in the conservation uh, field, which, as you likely know, was became really popular or was advanced, sorry, by the Roosevelt administration in the early 20th century. And McGee was acknowledged as the scientific brains behind the conservation movement, despite these really deep intellectual failings of the ideas. Uh, the political purchase was really resounding. Right, and I think we've seen that you know, throughout history in a, in a variety of ways where ideas get popularized despite perhaps not being accurate or not being the most effective way to do things. And in and, and thinking about that, though, you know, early 20th century, you know, the lead up to the Roosevelt administration, this is also a time where railroads are crossing, crisscrossing the country with greater regularity. There's greater, there a greater emphasis on, on, on the extract economy in the United States. So I'm wondering how does water fit within that? And is it simply another commodity, a natural commodity? that is created to go along with the other things that are being taken out of the ground at the same time? Is there a connection between the era and the way in which water is being managed? I think there is a connection, but it's maybe a counterintuitive one to the standard narratives around extraction uh, that we typically get in uh, environmental histories. 
Um, in fact, people like Powell and William McGee were deeply concerned that there was too much extraction of natural resources. Mm. Their, their concern was that uh, especially uh, European capital was involved in the extraction of value out of the U.S. that didn't benefit the American people. And so what they wanted to do was to bring natural resources in general under the management of the state for the purposes of benefiting uh, the people of the U.S. And, and for that, they saw the management of water as critical. And in fact, they were pretty merciless in criticizing the founders of the U.S. Republic for not anywhere considering water in the constitution of the country. And so they thought that what they needed to do was really naturalize U.S. institutions to the material basis that allowed the economy to function. Um, and they they had various ways in which they wanted to do this, none of which worked, of course. Uh, <laughs> but, <laughs> but for instance, um, uh, you know, at the time, um, the gold standard was the basis for the U.S. currency. But uh, McGee looked at the gold standard and said, well, gold has really little material value to the well-being of the American people, whereas water is the ultimate value. So why don't we replace the gold standard uh, with a water standard? And he came up with a calculation to convert the price of all U.S. property into uh, acre feet of water. So the amount of water it takes to cover uh, an acre of land one feet deep uh, using the seven-year annual runoff of rainfall. So they really want to take these ideas uh, in, a, in a really fairly radical way to set up American institutions as being grounded in the material limits of, of water itself. And that was, you know, it was quite a striking contrast to other forms of extraction because they still were quite willing to use water fully for the benefit of the American people. But they didn't want to see those benefits flow outside of the country. So it was a really national project and a project, in fact, that as they were critiquing sort of European capital, they argued would allow the U.S. to step out of sort of the colonial history of um, Europe and into a post-colonial view that wasn't grounded in the metaphysical histories of Europe, but in the geological history of the earth. And they thought if they could tie all this together, they would really have a new foundation for society. So as, as odd as it sounds, they were deeply committed to these ideas and had a, a coherent, if deeply flawed, view of how to work it out. Yeah, it seems extremely deeply flawed, especially you know if you're talking about a post-colonial model. But that sounds incredibly colonial in the North American sense of colonial, of of you're, nation state creating that, right? Like, you're absolutely correct. I mean, that's the that's one of the, the main arguments of the book is that in this effort to to escape sort of their version of colonialism in America, what they, or what they interpreted as sort of their colonial. Uh, war with Europe or with the UK in particular, uh, what they did was they set up conservation and other forms of managing water in a deeply settler colonial way. Right? So it was premised on a different form of colonialism, one that naturalized the US state to the land itself. Mm. Right? And and this was a big, um, big concern of theirs. Right. But I can also see why that's appealing to people and them wanting to, to, to root 
these ideas in the land. And it's easier, I, I know normalizes this Bud's word that is almost lost all meaning now, but normalizes the, the, inst the, the institutions if it's grounded in nature and people sort of buy it more and, and be like, all right, well, if, if this is organized and set up by the land, well, then it's, it is what it is. Right? It's not a human construction. So by trying to ground it that way, there's a lot of power there. Yeah, absolutely. There's a lot of power. And one of the reasons that I think their views have had such staying power in terms of why we haven't really escaped them yet is because at the base of their understanding of how geology gives birth to societies and particularly to, you know, American society is that it's all contingent, right? And that a good philosophy for governing natural resources takes this contingency on board and tries to align institutions to geologic evolu geological evolution. And I think this is the real power of, of their ideas and why we sort of haven't gotten past them yet uh, is because they've set up American institutions and particularly American liberalism as sort of the best social way to deal with chance. Mm -hmm. And I think this is, I think this is a really powerful reason that this these ideas around water management stick uh, because they can be returned to later when chance events turn out differently there can still be this appeal to say well we have the best model or the best political institutions for dealing with chance so even if our first idea didn't work well our second one is probably the second best right so like w with a drought say right it, it's not a failure of the ideas it's sort of that's the way it goes sometimes, and, and it doesn't. So, so the system itself is almost immune from any sort of criticism. Yeah, precisely. It, it maintains this kind of immunity, precisely by being able to always uh, ad adapt to whatever contingent things are thrown at it, right? So, drought or extremes of flood and so on, but also by having the ability to sort of outflank other social alternatives. Right. So especially in this sort of attempt to get away from European metaphysics, this appeal to the contingent ways in which the earth evolves presents sort of, you know, the biggest stick in the yard in terms of who has the best way, for, way to deal with these chance outcomes. Right. They're not the proclivity of God. They're not based on natural law. They are they're something that is just a fact about the changing nature of the earth. And, and this provides real, real staying power, I think, uh, as sort of the mid-20th century gets underway when these same American ideas are used to prompt UNESCO to create what's called the International Hydrological Decade, which is, was very much, again, shaped by American influences to try to get a global sense of how what the hydrological picture of the Earth actually was. Hmm. But is there's one thing that strikes me in all this is that water regularly crosses borders and it doesn't recognize the fake lines that human beings have put there to demarcate one country to another. And yet here is a country coming up with a very nationalized understanding of water. How does that system account for the way water flows freely between locations 
whether through rivers and those sorts of water systems, or even like rain, it it moves water from one location to another. I mean, it it strikes me as a reason, like I understand with something like wheats or, or even oil to a certain extent, like that, those things don't move. But water does, and water continually moves. So how how does how does the system that is very nationalized account for the international way in which water works? Yeah, great question. And this was really vexing to American water managers, kind of in the middle of the 20th century, particularly because well, at first they thought of it as an an outgrowth of a national problem. Mm. So their their national problem was that they had all of these private property owners who kept managing water in all sorts of ways with cumulative effects on larger water systems. So you can imagine the Mississippi is a gigantic watershed that drains a third of the United States. Thousands of small landowners, you know, fertilizing, forestry, mining, whatever it might be, pasturing animals and so on, cities. All of these, what they called little waters, uh, added up eventually to the Mississippi that was then sort of just the chance outcome of all these individual actions. Mm. And they had what what they called a sort of a little waters controversy over how to link the private free actions of individuals with the public good. You know, it's another classic sort of liberal problem. But as they worked through this idea, they came to the same conclusion that you just did, that, well, the hydrological endowment of the U.S. is connected to the global water system. And there's millions of people all around the world doing all kinds of things to that system. So how are we supposed to have a strong national approach to water if we don't know the state of the Earth's water in whole, uh, on the whole? And so this is what prompts American hydrologists in the 19, late 50s and 60s to develop a program for international hydrology that is launched in 1964 using essentially the same wording as the Americans uh, craft this project in. And between 1964 and 19, uh, sorry, 1965 and 1974, the international hydrological decade becomes the first international scientific collaboration to gain a global atlas of hydrology. So all of the stats that we are pretty familiar with now about how much water is salty, how much of it is fresh, how much is locked in glaciers, and so on, that all, all those numbers originally come out of this decade between 1965 and 74. And critically, the science isn't what I'm interested in the book. I'm interested in how this, the hydrological science is then used for management. Mm-hmm. What, be, what becomes critical then is that Americans at the close of that international decade, they take the lead in connecting the findings of, the, of hydrology to how water should be managed globally. And at the, at the close of that international decade, the UN has uh, a conference in Mar del Plata in Argentina in 1977. And there, a group of, well, specifically one uh, American geographer named Gilbert White is really pivotal in crafting the connection between global hydrology and human needs for water. And the way they do it is, is actually really fascinating because it involves a huge historical rewrite almost overnight. So... As the, hydro, as the international hydrological decade starts in on its reporting, 
there is a small cottage industry of publications by sociologists, geographers, political scientists, hydrologists, economists, almost everybody gets in on the action, writing these universal histories of water and man, that somehow, because there is this new picture of global water, there could be this universal history of human relationships to it. And so the end result uh, is that this sort of really recent effort in global hydrology gets read backwards to be a universal history of humans to water precisely at the same time as it's being used to coordinate international water management plans led by the United States. Mm -hmm. So this, this national problem then becomes naturalized globally through a whole series of scientific collaborations, publications, conferences, and so on. And it's really, uh, I think, this, this dual move in the 1970s between these universal histories and these new networks that allows, again, very problematically, allows the American experience to kind of go global towards the end of the 20th century. And is that cast at all in the Cold War realities of the second half of the 20th century, is, is this part of a, a larger American project to get away from any socialized or communist understanding? Like, does the Soviet Union have a conflicting idea of water management, and is there a battle, or is this simply an American domain that they take internationally and people buy into it? Yeah, no, you're, you're spot on again. There is a huge battle that goes on. Um, the, collaboration, the scientific collaboration during the international hydrological decade is actually really interesting for how American and Russian scientists collaborate together very effectively. Mm. But the political project, of course, during the Cold War is to put the American way of water management ahead of anything to do with state-planned communism. And so water is, throughout the Cold War period, a real soft power tool in international development for instance, funding dams on the, the Mekong River in Southeast Asia, uh, and then expecting water management to proceed through basically uh, forms that agree with American liberalism. These are very common during that sort of Cold War era. Uh, and what makes this sort of interesting bit, I think, is that when the UN gets involved in late 1970s with the first conferences on international water management, the way they navigate this tension is to say what we've found or what the hydrological decade indicates is the way that any industrializing society can manage water objectively. So rather than pit different kinds of economies against one another, which would be sort of politically myopic, in terms of building international collaborations, what they do is say, everybody has projects of industrialism. We're not going to judge between them. What we want to do is find ways for everybody in industrial societies to manage water, regardless of how those industrial uh, societies are organized. Oh, that's interesting. So there's a clear recognition of the economic value of it, apart from the, the human consumption side of it. Right, because because as you're talking, I was thinking about things like canals, say, right, the the building mm -hmm. of a canal. That's a use of water for a very specific economic purpose, that has nothing to do with the consumable of it, or even for in, in a lot of cases irrigation, or at least in the North American cases, it has nothing to do with irrigation either. It's a way to move people and 
frankly, more importantly, stuff from place to place. So those sorts of projects don't get necessarily judged as more valuable than, than others. They're just all part of a larger economic process. Yeah, and so the the real path through sort of is to not make those kinds of economic judgments while still saying that water is critical to both planned or market economies. And that that kind of tension between planning versus privatization that you identified right at the start of our conversation really haven't gone away. There are still deep, uh, deep contests over, you know, the human right to water versus treating water as a commodity, for instance, uh, is still a virulent debate in in global water management. And that's partly because of the way it was incorporated to sort of patch over these differences that that emerge in the in the sort of late 1970s. And again, what I think is is fascinating is here you have this form of American liberalism being used to not say what is the right outcome of water management in terms of different kinds of societies, but to to switch to setting the rules for how to participate in water governance. And mm-hmm. and here, you know, after the governance crisis in the early 1970s um, between, you know, finance and oil and banking, this sort of shift towards governments setting the rules for participation rather than adjudicating decisions is really reflected in water management as well. Hmm. Yeah, and it's such an interesting dynamic in terms of the economics of it and setting things up or or building communities, right? Like, So where I grew up, up the road uh, in Milton, Ontario, they I didn't grow up in Milton, but up the road in Milton, they were like planning new subdivisions, new communities. And the first part of it was building the water pipe to get water to the neighborhood, and that took however long. And then they could build the community, and now Milton is just so much bigger than it was when I was a kid because of the water pipe and the ability for people to get water in these homes. And it's so interesting to think that 400 years ago, you know, people had to live where the water was and where it was readily available. And now, through these sorts of processes that you're identifying in the book, we can change it and have water be taken to the people. That, to me, that strikes me as the end result of the process that you're talking about through government management of water and the use of water, the recognition of water as an economic engine. And now we can, it's fundamentally altered where people live, or at least given opportunity to live places where people hadn't lived before, at least in the numbers that they had. And it's so interesting that that human geography of it can be the end result. Or am I reading too much into that? No, I think you're you're not reading too much into it. And what I what I find really interesting about these sort of trajectories that you identified with Milton, you know, they play out in lots of places where new new technologies coupled with massive investments allow, you know, new water supplies to be transferred to various places. And those developments for the most part are kind of or they kind of emerge in a unique window of water development in the 20th century, a window that is now closing fairly quickly uh, in many places where water was taken where it's not sustainable to take it anymore. 
And so in many cases, the, the real push for development was premised on there being sort of an ability to manage water's abundance, right? Yeah. That water could be, if it was used carefully, even if there wasn't a lot of it, it could produce opportunities, you know, it could produce conditions for liberal abundance. And towards the end of the 20th century, the proposition that water is scarce really starts to take over to say, well, there, there isn't the opportunity to push it anywhere we want. And in fact, if we keep doing it, we may end up exacerbating scarcity in ways that, you know, lead to open conflict, right? That create condition that create problems for security, either with respect to, you know, human to human security, because you want it and I want it and there's not enough, or because we undermine the conditions, the ecological or environmental conditions for healthy communities in general through, you know, chemical loading and pollution and those sorts of things. Right. And I guess just an offshoot of that and something that I don't actually know that, that you might, is there an act, is there a finite amount of water on the earth or in the earth around the earth, like available that at some point there's a breaking point that the amount of water, because, because whenever I go to one of these museums, they say that there's the same amount of water as in 2017, as there was in you know time immemorial like at, there's always been that same amount of water is that true and is there a point at which the human population on earth will not be able to be sustained by the amount of water that at least consumable water that there is uh, it is true that there's the same amount of water roughly speaking i mean it's very minor uh differences in the, uh -huh. the amount of water like exceedingly minor so it is water, fresh water and salt water are both limited. Right? The, the real challenge in terms of environmental limits that is posed is, one, not all of the limits are the same. So the limits on groundwater use, for instance, are much different than the limits on uh, renewable rivers that flow annually hmm. because you have a kind of one chance to use groundwater if you if you use it very quickly it could take a long time for that groundwater to recharge so the limit looks very different in time and over space uh, and similarly with uh, pollutants right polluting polluting water uh, underground or in in um, aquifers has a very different effect. No, no pollution, of course, is good, but has a very different effect than if you are, say, the city of Montreal and you discharge your raw sewage into the river for a couple of weeks while you repair your uh, water utilities like Montreal did uh, not that long ago. Right? It looks very different right? in terms of what those limits are. Yeah. Right, because water is... It's, I mean, it's obviously, it's something that gets recycled over and over and over again and... and you know, if it's the same amount of water now as there's always been, I mean, it's being reused in, in a variety of forms. So it strikes me as something that, well, you're, you're right, like pollution is, is not good, but it strikes me as something that is resilient. It, I think it strikes a lot of people as resilient. And in the book, part of what I do is to try to show how that very idea is also produced in this longer history. Okay. Because one of the things that happened was this, this early notion, you know, that we could think about water geologically, 
gets ramped up, as we discussed, into the global hydrological cycle, which is, again, another way to think about water geologically in terms of how it fits with other cycles. And, and by the end of the 20th century and into our current time, water is really seen as part of the Earth system. Right? Water is seen as one system amongst many biogeochemical bio processes, uh, the phosphorus cycle, the carbon cycle, and so on. And the idea that water has a certain amount of uh, resilience is seen as a function of how it operates within this broader Earth system. Right, So various forces are affecting water, not only human, but from various directions. And one of, the, one of the interesting things that I found is that we have this set of ideas about how to manage water that emerge from geology that never go away in terms of their commitment to a certain form of American liberalism, that when Earth system science emerges in the late 20th century, these ideas become the very basis to connect new scientific findings about geology and human impacts on the earth to how we should now manage water. And the way that connection is forged is by treating the earth system in terms of resilience and treating, you know, coupled social and ecological systems as entangled in very complex ways where we want to maintain the resilience of both to the degree that we can. And part of it, my argument in the book is that if we want to take seriously the deep human impacts on the water system, indeed on the planet that we have, we'll have to recognize that the way in which we are still managing water continues in this one cultural veil to the exclusion of others. Right? There are many interesting ways and profound ways to think about how water should fit with society. And at the global level, we're really putting a lot of uh, trust in this one set of ideas that I think are worth relativizing to give other other ones a hearing, if not for the sake of justice, then for the sake of, you know, better ideas. Sure. Yeah. And I remember I was home uh, at my parents' house in October or something, and we, we were having dinner at a place, and across the street was Town Hall, and there was a little protest. Uh, it was actually Halloween, uh, the night of Halloween, and there was a protest because the council, the town council had sold rights to the water in i don't know if it was one of the lakes or one of the rivers to nestle to come in take the water bottle it and sell it and there was a protest saying that's wrong they shouldn't be able to do that and i thought that's a reasonable argument that you're right like nestle shouldn't be able to come in and do that that's wrong and then two days later when i was back in ottawa i was at wherever whatever store and it, cheap Halloween candy was on sale and I bought a bunch of uh, caramel bars or something and I got home and I looked oh these are Nestle products I'm full of garbage like I, I, <laughs> I, I think what they're doing is wrong and yet I'm still gonna buy the the product even though it was it was unconscious that I did that like and it in that moment it struck me that yeah like the the water policies that exist people might think they're bad but it's gotten to the point where they've become so much a part of just how we understand the way in which the resource is being managed that I'm not sure, at least on an individual level, how to push back against that. And, and here was an opportunity for me to do that. And I failed miserably. 
Well, <laughs> at the risk of sounding too Canadian, I don't think you should be too hard on yourself. Um, <laughs> but you know, I think that there's really something to that kind of story, and I don't think you're alone in in that sort of challenge at all. Uh, and part of what I wanted to do in the book is to diagnose that you know things and or sorry that approaches to water that aren't even considered a philosophical choice actually are. Right? And to, I think a first step, and I mean, it's a very academic first step, of course, is to identify that these, these difficulties that you're facing, these are the outcomes of a particular way of thinking. And I, I don't try to sugarcoat it too much in the book, that a good deal of the problem is actually the way that we've been teaching water management for a long time. And I think that the, the disciplines in the university bear a fair amount of the burden for having taught these ideas as though they're natural, as though this is the way that we should think about water management, when in fact this is just one cultural way of thinking about water management. And so I have I have a fairly deep concern that we we do change the way that we teach water management from the start to help in the development of new ideas, because I think if the point of choice is the Nestle bar on the stand, then that's a very difficult point of choice. <laughs> I think that the, the point of choice could look a lot different if we, if we thought about water and its relationship to society in different ways. Right? We would have different kinds of problems. They might still be challenging, but they would look very different than the ones we have now. For sure. And I don't know, is, is it as simple as getting away from the, the liberal ideology and thinking of it as more of a communal thing and, and thinking about how does this affect everyone as opposed to that classic liberal idea and especially you know in this country with not everyone having access or even in, in the United States. I mean you look at what's going on in Flint, Michigan and I think a case could be made based off what you're saying that that those things are allowed then to fester and, and continue because of a liberal ideology and that isn't really the the i mean when we're talking about something that is essential to human survival that an approach that preaches the individual and chance and all this other stuff like it, it just seems it, it almost seems inhumane to do that from from people who are privileged to have readied access to water to look at it in that framework, it just seems so inhumane to me. Yeah, I, I think that it is deeply unethical for for this system to continue unabated. I think if we look at the the unjust treatment of First Nations in Canada, the structurally unjust and structurally similar injustices in places like Flint, Michigan, or at Standing Rock in the United States over the pipeline protest in North Dakota, I think that there is a very strong case to make that this initial link that I talked about between American liberalism and this form of settler colonialism it's designed to, that water management is designed to support need to be radically challenged and significantly disrupted if we're going to have any chance of meeting the obligations to others. And I think others in this sense, you know, depending on the place, that will take very different forms. I think, you know, in the Canadian context, 
there's enormous opportunity and enormous duty to hold um, to hold government leaders to account on treaty obligations, for instance, to on the UN Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous People, and so on. I think that in that case, we have a very specific history that needs to be attended to, and that there are opportunities to attend to it. But those, you know, those take action. Mm-hmm. And I, th- I think that's, it, it's certainly, as you put it, inhumane to pretend that it's just okay to let small children wake up without clean water. It just does not, doesn't, it won't ring true with anybody that this is a just way to organize things. For sure. We encourage everyone to pick up the book. I mean, there's a bunch of documentaries and things on Netflix, but they tend to, from the stuff I've watched, talk about the contemporary idea of this and, and what's at, what, what's going on in terms of water wars and, and access to water and the commodification of it. But what, what I really like about what you've done is you've looked at where these ideas come from. And in any discussion, debate, whatever it is, you have to know the origins of something to, to truly combat the negative influences it has. So that's what I really like about what, what you've done here with this. And, and it's a, obviously a complicated contested space, but it really seems like you've, you've put out, uh, I mean, in terms of just even the structure of the book structured in terms of the, the parts abundance, scarcity, security, and looking at it that way, I, I think it, it seems like a really effective way to get this point across. I certainly hope so. And of course, like any, anybody who writes a book, you never know how it will be taken uh, as it goes forward. But I hope that it's a part of a conversation that we need to have, not just with academics, but with everybody that we share water with. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, this is certainly, you know, I mean, academics, I was talking to my friend Dean the other day and, and he went to, he works for the government and he was at Carleton for a, a conference of sorts and, and I saw him afterwards and he was just railing against academics and why don't we do anything useful that is applicable outside of academia? And I, I think he listens to this, to the podcast. So here's one for him. Like, here, well, here, right? like, I certainly hope so. I mean, I think in one of the unique things from a sort of intellectual point of view is that when it comes to water policy, there has been an enormous amount of traffic between academics and government. Mm-hmm. It's, I don't know if it's the same in every other sector, but in, in water, it's very significant. I mean, it's probably much more the case in finance, right, if you look at Goldman Sachs and, and the White House. But certainly on natural resource sectors, there is an enormous amount of shared ideas going back and forth between the academy and the state. Mm-hmm. And so I think that there's, you know, there's really good reasons to look deeply at how the academy is approaching its relationship to both the state and to the ideas that it claims to be critical of and to be appraising for society on the whole. Right, because there's so many layers to that relationship. Precisely, yeah. yes. Yeah. So, so again, the title of the book is Water Abundance, Scarcity, and Security in the Age of Humanity, funded in part by a 2015 Shirk Impact Grant, which is always fun when people can get those, especially when they're putting out really good, good work. And we're recording this on March 29th, I think today's March 29th, uh, we're posting it on the 12th, but in the interim, you are coming to Canada to do a tour. You're like the Beatles. 
<laughs> I don't think I'll, yeah. I'll be in. Uh, I'll be doing a very small, much more modest tour, uh, but I'll be at uh, in Montreal at McGill on the on April the 10th, and then at uh, Waterloo on the 12th, and Western University on the 13th. The the talk that I give at Waterloo will be simultaneously webcast and then put up later. So that will be an opportunity for people who are interested to get the the story of the book as I try to tell it. Yeah. So we would encourage everyone, even if you're listening to this, then after those dates that yeah, go out and, and check out the recorded version of the talk and you get more info on the book. And in addition to that, go look at Jeremy's Twitter at Jeremy J underscore Schmidt. And I'm sure there'll be links to all your stuff, the videos and, and all that kind of stuff for more information about the book. So we would encourage you to do that. And Jeremy Schmidt from Durham University, thank you for doing this. Thanks so much, Sean. If you have any questions or comments for the podcast, it's historyslam at gmail.com. Twitter is at Dr. Shawnee Fever. And if you're at and you see Enrico Palazzo, please say hi for me. Thanks for listening to the History Slam podcast. Be sure to check out Active History for more features, articles, and be sure to subscribe on iTunes.